I'll invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 5 as we continue uh, to study through Galatians. We're looking at verses, what verses? Verses 16 to 18, I do know, uh, verses 16 to 18 today. Uh, there are a number of metaphors in the Bible used to describe the Christian life. And one of these metaphors is the metaphor of war. Uh, throughout the battle and a num- or throughout the scriptures in a number of different places, we find this language of battle to describe our living, the Christian life. Uh, Paul declared near the end of his life, as he's writing 2 Timothy to Timothy, he declared that he had fought the good fight. And earlier, he had admonished Timothy himself to fight the good fight of the faith. And there are many fronts to this war that we battle. And there are three principal enemies. One of our enemies is, of course, Satan, along with his demonic forces. Another enemy we face is the world, the unbelieving world, which lies in the power of the evil one, enslaved to sin, suppressing the truth about God in unrighteousness, opposing God in all that is good. We encounter the lies of the devil, the work of Satan all the time in the world around us. We see the sin and the shattered lives everywhere that are the result of this. We also see where we may not see shattered lives. We see the arrogance of those who claim to have it all together, the self-righteousness of the rich and powerful. And of course, we know that ultimately the Bible says that our battle is not ultimately against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of darkness at work in our world. Now that does not mean that human beings do not oppose us. Uh, They most assuredly do. But when Paul says that in Ephesians 6, that our battle is not ultimately against flesh and blood, it is a reminder that ultimately our battle is a spiritual one. That behind all these things we face, there are spiritual realities. We deal with and battle with ideas and arguments. We battle over the truth and over claims of what is true and right and wrong. And we do so with the Word of God. We fight with spiritual weapons, this spiritual war. And there is another enemy. There is a a third enemy. There is another field on which this war is waged that every Christian knows well. And it is the battle that goes on within. It is the internal battle between the Spirit of God within us and our enemy of the flesh. And it is this battle to which Galatians turns our attention here in chapter 5, as Paul is instructing us about the nature of the Christian life. Paul has denied, of course, as we think about where we've come through Galatians, if you've been with us through this, or if you're familiar with the book, Paul has denied that the Christian life is, a, is an attempt to try to perfect the salvation that God has given us in Christ. Some people think that way. Salvation, the gospel, gets us kind of in the door, and now we take over from here, and we have to try to keep ourselves in the salvation, or maybe even try to complete the salvation God 
maybe cast one vote and we're casting the other or however people might say it. In chapter 3, verse 3, Paul said, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? And that's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. That's not how this works. Paul has denied that we are in any way, as Christians, legalistically striving in order to try to attain our righteous standing before God. Again, as he has been stating, the theme of this book, we are justified rather by faith alone in Christ Jesus alone on account of what he has done. And yet, though we would look purely to Christ Jesus to find our hope of salvation and not in anything that we do, though God is entirely gracious in his salvation of sinners, this doesn't mean that those who are trusting in Christ, that we are then to simply, well, just give ourselves over to sin then. If God delights to be gracious and he saves graciously, then maybe let's just continue saving. He shows more grace and he gets more glory. Is that what you're saying, Paul? Paul, of course, denied that. And we looked at that last week. As we saw last week, we are freed from the dominion of sin, but again, not to simply indulge the flesh, but rather, as we saw, we are called to, in love, serve one another. Our freedom from sin is somewhat paradoxically a slavery unto God to serve him. Of course, we know from our experience, we know also from Scripture, that denying the flesh is not something that just simply is automatic. That's something we just wake up every day just really excited to always do. It's not something that I don't think anyone would ever describe as an easy thing. For honest, and of course we should be honest, and we know that. What Paul said last time, through love, serve one another. That's just not always an easy thing to do. It requires a battle to do it. The churches of Galatia, to whom Paul is writing, uh, they had been under this influence of this false teaching. Uh, these uh, people, these teachers, often called the Judaizers. And because of this heresy, Paul comes out of the gate in Galatians chapter 1, calling it a different gospel. He pronounces curses upon these men. You recall this is a a big deal. Paul is engaging in the spiritual battle by uh, teaching truthfully and truly from the word of God and the truth of the gospel. He has defended his position in the gospel from the Old Testament scriptures. We've seen this through Galatians But because this heresy had been spreading through this region of Galatia and the various churches, because it was being entertained and received by some of these people in the churches, the churches were in a state of turmoil. And Paul warned in verse 15, we saw again last week, about their biting and their devouring of one another. He warned them, be careful, if you continue in this fleshly way, you're going to consume one another. And this is the reality of what heresy does. It causes division. In fact, the very Greek word from which we get heresy has that connotation of division. It is not Paul and those clinging to the truth of the gospel causing the problem. It is the false teachers and those who are going along with them. 
And so as he is exhorting them to believe the truth of the gospel and to reject those false teachers, he is exhorting them here in our text to cease their hostility and fighting with one another, and he exhorts them towards humbly, instead of fighting one another, humbly battling their own flesh. There are times when people are thrust into situations where we must take a stand, where people must fight. Perhaps they have to fight a fight they don't even want to fight it, but circumstances demand it. And sometimes we can feel this way when we think about our own internal battle with the flesh. We become tired from it. It's a wearisome task. It can seem like a mountain when we think about our sinfulness and our struggles with it. It's just easier. It is just easier in one sense to just live by fleshly impulse, to just do whatever comes. Of course, we know to the sensitive conscience that's not easier in another sense. We are tired. It's easier to just give in But of course, that is not the Christian life, to give in and to live by the flesh. And as we said last time, as those trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, placing our hope in him, we are on the one hand, those who are most at rest. We are completely at rest, entrusting the entirety of our salvation to the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished and what he is going to yet do for us. That God Almighty is going to carry us through and bring us safely home. And we rest in this. We trust that God is going to graciously do this for us. And so we can be at peace and calm. And yet on the other hand, our life is not one that is merely one of ease. The descriptions of the Christian life that we find in Scripture are not us sitting by the poolside, just getting a tan and at ease and at rest. Our rest, ultimate rest, where everything is at ease, no more battles, no more struggles, is a future rest that we yet await in fullness. In the meantime, we are indeed in a battle. And the focus of our text today is on the internal battle that each Christian wages. There is no denying the reality of this battle, and there is no escaping engagement in it for the Lord's people. If somebody is happy to engage in the battle that goes on out there with the world, and yet neglects or ignores the internal battle, if we are those who are so concerned about evil where we might find it out there, but we are neglecting it where evil might still reside in here, then, of course, that is hypocrisy. We call that hypocrisy. We are indeed to be concerned about the sin that yet remains within us and to war against it. And this is what Paul instructs us in here. As we go through verses 16 to 18, we will see that Christians are freed from sin's dominion so that we might walk by the Spirit and so make war against our indwelling sin. 
So let's read. We're going to read beginning in verse 13, Galatians 5, 13. We'll read through to the end of the chapter, and then we will focus on verses 16 to 18. So Galatians 5, beginning in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So let's begin here as we go through verses 16 to 18 by looking at the nature of this internal battle. What is this internal battle? So in verse 16 again, Paul writes, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So here he tells us how it is that we are to battle with our flesh. And we're going to come back to verse 16 in a moment, but I want to look at verse 17 first. As he goes on here in verse 17 to lay out this battle that's going on, giving the reason why it is that we're to be careful to walk by the Spirit. So verse 17, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Scripture describes here this battle within the believer as two warring parties within you. That's what he's describing here. Now again, I want to clarify, this battle is not a battle for your salvation. Paul is describing... What's going on inside the person who has graciously been called out of darkness, graciously been saved by God already, by faith in Christ. He's describing the life of the believer. This battle is not to determine whether or not you are a Christian. It is the battle that goes on within the child of God. When God saves a sinner... He makes that individual a new creation. 
and gives to them his Holy Spirit, who resides then within the believer. When this happens, there is an actual change that occurs within that person. There are new desires that come to that person. There is agreement with the things of the Lord. I am a sinner and in need of God's saving. God makes the sinner a new creation. The old man is gone and the new man has come, as Scripture says elsewhere. But what we want that to mean, we think God gives his spirit, God makes us a new creation. What we wish that would mean is that we would just instantly, right away, just become completely holy in our persons. We would like that to mean that there is just no more sin at all whatsoever. And yet, this isn't what happens. We are indeed new in Christ. We have the Spirit of God. But the Spirit then begins in the believer a lifelong process of sanctifying us in our person, conforming the believer into the image of Christ. And while the Spirit resides in us and through faith in Christ we are made new, we still have within us this remnant of corruption that is called here the flesh. And we talked a little more about that last week. And so the presence of the remaining flesh and the presence of the Holy Spirit within the believer is why it is that there is, as our confession states it, a continual and irreconcilable war. The Greek, Greek text here in verse 17 says, The flesh desires against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. The flesh is almost personified here as it possesses desire and wages war against the spirit within us. And the remaining flesh within us, we're told here, has a goal to keep you from doing the things that you want to do, it says. Now, this is what is described in Romans chapter 7, a fairly well-known passage as Paul there is describing, again, the life of the Christian. We read some of that. He says in Romans 7, 19, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now, when he says that, Paul is not dodging his personal responsibility for his actions. Like, hey, I, it's, I, it's, I have nothing to do with that. You can't hold me responsible for that. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that it is not my true and renewed self. Rather, it is my remaining corruption. That's the distinction he's making there. It's that old man. This is in verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right... Evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. This is the battle that rages within the believer. 
And it's such that we don't always do the good thing that we know we ought to do, the good thing that we even want to do. This explains why sometimes the believer feels like you feel like you're ripped in half because you have these competing desires. There comes a desire for good, and then right behind it comes a competing desire to not do that good, to go the other way. Then sometimes you have that desire for evil even comes in. You're like, well, maybe this time. And then comes that desire for good, and you now wrestle, and you, you can't just headlong into sin. You feel the conviction of that sin. There is a battle waged within you. You're pulled in two different directions. And notice... It's not just a battle of external things that we do. Paul is talking about this internal reality. He's talking about it's a a battle on the level of desires, of cravings, of wants. Sin is not simply an external matter. The war is waged internally. James tells us each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Meaning when that desire is conceived and takes root, then it gives birth to the act of sin. That desire entices us, it lures us. It's important that we understand that the Christian life involves this battle. I think there are lots of reasons why we need to reckon with this and understand this. One of them is because it is this very struggle with sin and with these desires at war within us. It is this very struggle that causes some people to question and doubt their salvation. This is a battle that can be very troubling to us. If we are sensitive to sin, we have some sense of the holiness and justice of God. And I should and I know better than this. And yet here it is, the sin still here. It's aggravating to the soul of the believer. We know, we know God is worthy of way better than whatever it is I'm bringing him. And all of that is true, but this is where we need to now think very carefully and correctly because often people will make a wrong turn here and they'll conclude, well, a Christian wouldn't have this battle. A person who had the Spirit of God within him would never have these kinds of desires, wouldn't struggle the way that I do. And so then we're concluding or we're tempted to conclude I must not be a Christian. I must not have the Spirit. But what is the Bible telling us here? What's it saying to you? That this battle does characterize the person who possesses the Holy Spirit. It is troubling that we would have these desires for sinfulness within us. But why do you even care about it in the first place? It's a sign that you have the Holy Spirit within you. That it would trouble you so. And 
while there is progress in this lifetime in our war with the flesh and our war with sin, this is not a war that's going to conclude and finish in our lifetime. It will not conclude until Christ returns or he calls us home. That's when the sanctifying work of God's Spirit will be completed in his people. And it will be completed. Again, this is our hope. We might feel weak now. We feel uncertain. We doubt. We struggle with doubt. We feel weak. We feel the weight of our sinfulness. And not just the actions, again, those desires. What is our hope? Our hope is that God is faithful. That he will complete the work that he begins in you. And so we look ahead to that day and cling to it in faith. But until that time, we continue to battle. If you do not know anything about this battle, if for you there is really no wrestling over your sinfulness, maybe even an assumption of your own goodness, then you really do need to ask yourself if you have indeed been born of God. Whether you have believed the gospel truly, turn from your sin to place your faith in Christ Jesus, understand something of the wickedness of your sinfulness, to see your need for God to change your heart, to make you new, and to graciously forgive you of your sins. That's the starting point. We'll come back to that later. But again, I think a further point of application here before we move on, and it's kind of what I already said, but you, you need to understand that you're not above this struggle. I think a lot, I've talked with people who they know that this is true for other Christians. We look at other Christians and we can see a measure of fruitfulness. We say, well, yeah, they look pretty good. But then we don't apply this to ourselves. We think, but my sinfulness and my struggle is somehow different. My struggle, my desires, they prove that I'm a you know, worthless heathen. I'm not, I'm not saying this to excuse our sinfulness. I trust you understand that. But we have to at some level, make peace with the fact that we're going to have this struggle and have this battle. And if you're waiting to find rest in Christ Jesus, hope of salvation, confidence, if you're waiting until you are, have reached some level of holiness, abandon that. Make Christ alone your hope of redemption. Your very struggle is precisely why we need his salvation. So don't refuse to comfort yourself with the gospel when you're struggling with your sin. Run to it. See that it is finished in what Christ has accomplished. And recognize that the presence of the battle, the fact that you care and are vexed by it, is a good sign. 
So this is the reality, the nature of the battle within. The flesh and the spirit are at war within us. Now let's look back at verse 16 again and look more about how we engage this battle. Verse 16, but I say walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. I think both halves of this verse require a little bit of explaining. Again, I think the tendency for us is to read this this way. If I walk by the Spirit, then I will not sin. That's how I think we just read this. And yet I sin, therefore, I don't have the Spirit. I, we, again, we begin to doubt our salvation. The presence of sin, I guess I, I'm not walking by the Spirit, or maybe I don't have the Spirit. Of course, there are other various unhelpful and wrong ways I think this verse is taken. Let's look into this. What what is this saying? Well, to walk, of course, refers to our conduct, our action, our living. He's saying live, walk by the Spirit. Notice it is something that Paul is calling us to here. It's an activity he's commanding us to. He's calling us to do this. And so what is this? How would we do this? Well, to summarize... I would say that walking by the Spirit means living in dependence upon His power, pursuing that which pleases Him, and battling sin with the tools that He provides and in the manner that is laid out for us in the Scripture. So let's just flesh this out a little bit more. I want to just talk about four sub-points here as we think about walking in the Spirit and what this means. First of all, this command to walk in the Spirit assumes that we possess the Spirit. It assumes, then, that we have indeed believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we have been made new creatures, that we have been, as he says in chapter 4, verse 29, born according to the Spirit, which is what being born again means, if you're familiar with that term. This is how the Spirit of Christ comes to reside in His people. It comes as we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of our souls. And so the Christian life, the life in the Spirit, begins here. Back in chapter 3, verse 14, Paul said that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit By faith. When we believe in Christ Jesus, we receive the promised Spirit. So, this is not any sort of second blessing that we need to try to pursue later on, some second later outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And then, once we maybe attain that, uh, then we might be uh, maybe have a shot at becoming perfect or close to it or or putting off the deeds of the flesh. There's various errors trending in that direction. This command to walk in the Spirit does assume that we possess the Spirit, that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been made new. Second, walking by the Spirit involves conscious dependence upon His help and His power. The Christian life is not one that we simply undertake under our own power and might. Again, the Bible doesn't teach that God kind of gets us in, and now we've just got to finish the task ourselves. 
Uh, sometimes the gospel is preached that way. It's good news for the sinner. You believe, you enter, and now we set that aside and here are all the rules. And good luck. This Christian life certainly involves our efforts. It involves our strivings. Again, another metaphor for the Christian life used commonly is racing. Paul's command us here to walk. It involves our efforts. It involves striving. But sanctification, being made holy, is ultimately the work of God that he accomplishes by the power of the Holy Spirit. If the Spirit of God has brought us to this new life in Christ Jesus and has indwelt us, we should not think of the Christian life then as abandoning that in order to now try to finish the race apart from him and with our own efforts, by our own efforts. This is the gist of what it was the Judaizers were preaching. Again, back in chapter 3, verse 3, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Again, that's what their teaching amounted to. Okay, you believe in Jesus, great, but you haven't done enough yet. Now you have to keep these other laws, and when you've done these things, and you've done them long enough and well enough, and stay doing these things as long as you live, however they presented it, then you would be saved. It's finishing the work with our own obedience to certain laws and commands. We've seen this throughout the book of Galatians. Salvation is indeed a work of God, as is our sanctification. We are dependent on the Holy Spirit to lead us. He's going to mention in verse 18 that if you are led by the Spirit, and even the the fruit of the Spirit that we'll get to in verse 22. Clearly, Paul wants us to think about the fruit of the Spirit and pursue the fruit of the Spirit and desire to overflow in that fruit of the Spirit. But even calling it the fruit of the Spirit implies that it is something that the Spirit produces in his people. So we are in need, constant, continual need, For the Spirit's power and work in us. And so we are those then who are to live in self-conscious reliance upon him for this. Thirdly, walking by the Spirit involves using the means that the Spirit has given us to fight our battle. We have spiritual tools and means for our spiritual battle. We sometimes refer to what are often called the means of grace. But there are certain things that God has ordained and given as delivery mechanisms of his grace by which he imparts and gives spiritual strength and grace and power to his people. One of these means would be the means of prayer. Yeah, this, this just logically follows from what we just said. If we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit to sanctify us and to help us and to give us strength. It follows then that we would be those who are continually praying, asking God for help. Not just standing back and I better not approach him until I've cleaned up my act. No, we go to him in our filthiness. We go to him in confession of our sins. We walk in that light. 
And we plead with him to help us, to strengthen us, to give us grace. We have this access to the throne of God's grace and the invitation by God Almighty that we to come boldly in the name of Christ. Not because we're clean, but because we come in Christ's name, dressed in his robes, in his merits. That's the only right we have to go to the king. And what a right, a privilege. We pray. The scriptures are a means of God's grace to his people. And of course, we know they're called the sword of the spirit, battle language. The more we know the scriptures, the more we would understand the scriptures, the more we will be strengthened by it. Again, we're told the Bible thoroughly equips the man of God for every good work. The Bible reveals to us the things that are pleasing to our God. And we'll see an example of this next time as we get into the fruit of the Spirit. We find in the Scriptures God's moral law. The reflection of His own righteousness and holiness. We are not under God's law as a means to try to attain our righteous standing before God. It's not a ladder we're climbing to heaven. But God's moral commands do guide us. They show us, reveal to us the things that are pleasing to our saving, gracious God. We also gather as we are now for corporate worship to read, to pray, to sing. You know, Colossians says we're singing to one another, psalms addressing one another and psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We're not only singing our worship to God, but we are Addressing one another as well and reminding one another of the truths of God's word as we sing these songs to the Lord. These are means of God's grace to his people. We take the Lord's Supper together to be reminded of his death for you who are believing in him. We baptize new believers. All of these things are means by which the spirit sanctifies his people. And so it would follow then that we would be those who desire to make use of those means. These are not things that we say, some sort of legal arrangement where we say, okay, 15 minutes of Bible reading yields so much victory in our lives. And we just, we can nail it like that. If I go to church three out of four Sundays a month, I'll get this much grace to handle this much temptation. And it doesn't work like that. Often we can't see the work of grace that's going on in our lives. But we can be so fickle and we want to just quit and give up so quickly. Well, I did it once and it didn't seem to work. These are means by which God gives grace to his people and so we, we use them. Like as you think about church, we live in fellowship with one another. We receive the blessing of one another's gifts, which Ephesians 4 says is for the building up of the body to strengthen us, to help us through. I don't know if she'd like this, but I'm going to do it anyways. Uh, Laurel, right now, in the hospital. It's not a very pleasant place to be. I don't know 
uh, any hospital, let alone ours. Uh, but to watch her even today be rejoicing, be glad, be thankful. There's scriptures there in a frame for her that someone here brought to her. This is how we encourage and strengthen and, and help one another along. It's just one example. There's many more. You can see her gratitude for that. It's, it builds her up. It helps her. It's helping her battle. So we are those who make use of the spirit-given weapons of our warfare. Again, this is not a legalistic thing. Well, I have to do it once a day or whatever. It's not the attitude. These are, these are the means God's given us for this life and to battle. And so let's do what we can to pick up and read and use these means and to fight to pray. I tried. I couldn't focus. I'm going to try again. Fourthly, walking by the Spirit means that we make conscious and intentional effort to kill our sin and to walk in righteousness by the help of the Spirit. Romans 8, verse 13, we read this earlier. It speaks of putting to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. Paul speaks of it there as the right and necessary and important activity of Christians. Again, this involves using the spiritual means we've just been talking about and tools. As we seek to snuff out the life of the flesh and set before us, before our minds, the things of the Spirit. This is similar to what Paul says elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 4. When he speaks of the new life of the Christian, he says to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. As he says, let the thief no longer steal but in its place, put on hard work that he might have something, not only for himself, but to share and to give. If we are envious and jealous as we seek to put that off and to kill that where we find that in ourselves, we turn and we seek to put on thankfulness to our God, contentment for what he has given to us, uh, gladness at his sovereignty that he gives out the things he does in his own wisdom, that we have what we have by his gracious hand, and we don't have what we ha don't have because he has seen fit for it to be that way. <laughs> I think this, I don't know when the last time is you, you gave thought to maybe where it is you are giving to the flesh. Maybe some of these fleshly desires that are strong within you that you've thought about specifically, I think that's one I'd like to work at putting to death and to seek out what do the scriptures say in the opposite direction that are good and holy and righteous to put on in its place, to put those before my eyes, to seek after those things. Again, I don't think we should get into morbid introspection, but there is a place to examine ourselves, to take stock of where we're at, that we might war against and seek to put to death the deeds of the flesh. So I think these are all things that are included in walking by the Spirit. And of course, there's a promise here 
in verse 16 says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, given what he goes on to say in verse 17, which we've already looked at, and given what we see in Scripture about the Lord's people still sinning and the battle that rages, given our own personal experience of the fact that the battle doesn't just go away, this isn't saying that you will never sin. Again, if I just do A plus B, then no more sin. It's not saying that. It is rightly pointed out by many that the word translated gratify here, gratify the desires of the flesh in the ESV, is a word that means to fulfill something or bring it to its end or its completed goal. The promise here is that your flesh will not have the ultimate victory. That though you battle now and that though your desires are indeed at war within you, that you will not bring to completion those desires of the flesh. That your flesh will not have dominion over you to enslave you to its passions once more. In other words, the spirit that is at work within you, waging this war, will bring you the victory in the end. Your flesh may indeed prevail much at times, and you are not perfectly freed from its opposition in this lifetime, but it will not be the end of you. This is important to cling to in those moments where you feel very low and you feel that discouragement of the flesh. It might feel like it's enslavement. We might wonder, I've prayed, why hasn't God removed this from me? And so, again, a further temptation is to say, well, he's not listening or he's not answering prayer. But we know that God works on a timetable that is not ours. We see that all throughout the Bible. Even things God promises, like our victory over the flesh, don't necessarily come to us right away when we would want them. I was just uh, looking at a sermon by John Calvin from 2 Samuel talking about David and how he'd been promised the kingdom of Israel. But consider how long it was from when David was anointed by Samuel until he actually became king and all of the 12 tribes actually were subject to him. It was a long and painful road. God had promised him this thing, but he didn't just give it to him right away. David was forced to wait upon the Lord in faith and in trust that God will be faithful. Why? Because he's God and he keeps his word. So we feel weak, we feel tired, we're vexed by our sin and our sinful desires. We stay the course. We keep on praying to the Lord for help. We keep battling. We keep reading the word. We keep on in the Christian life with the hope that we will not be enslaved by our sin. I think what he's saying here is that we will, we should expect and can expect to have some measure of victory in this life over sin. There is a progressive sanctifying of the Lord's people. But we must again look ultimately to the end to see its completion. 
And so don't lose hope. Again, the very presence of your desire to be done with sin is a good sign. Remember that God is committed to the sanctification of his people. He will purify a people for himself. He will complete the work that he begins in you. Those whom he predestined and called, he also justified. That goes on to say he also glorified. We read that in Romans 8. So we're not glorified yet. No, we're not glorified yet, but Paul speaks of it as if it's a done deal because God is faithful and he will surely complete his work. So we set our eyes on the things above. We set our eyes on what is to come and God's grace to be revealed at the end. And we carry on in hopefulness of this. We often wish it were not this way. We wish it was just sanctification was immediate, like justification is. We just immediately, none of this battle. But this is not the way it is. And this keeps us, why does God do it this way? I, can't, I don't know for certain, but the only thing I can think of is that it keeps us continually dependent upon him. It keeps us from pride. It keeps us from seeing just how sinful we were when we began. That all these years later, we're still battling. So that at the end, when we do stand before God, brought to perfection, we will know without any doubt that this was all purely by the goodness of God and in his grace. In verse 18, just very briefly, there's another reminder here and a key distinction as we think about this battle in the Christ, that is the Christian life. It's an important reminder. He says in verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. What Paul is saying here is that the type of Spirit-led Christian existence that he's calling us to and he's talking about is not a return to the law of Moses it's not a resurrection of the old covenant. It's not some form of legalism either. The Judaizers wanted to put believers back under the law. Back under the law as a covenant of works. They need to do these things in order to obtain the reward at the end. This is what all legalists do. This is how legalists think and operate. Yeah, Paul has made clear throughout Galatians that if we go down that road, God's demand is then you must be perfect. And because you're not, there's only a curse for you down that road. So what Paul is clarifying here is that he, as he calls us to walk by the Spirit, as even in the previous text we saw that we're to love one another. And this is a fulfillment of the law even, to love one another. That he is not putting us under the law as a covenant of works. Rather, we are those who have been called out of our sin, sin, out of the dominion of sin. We have been freed. We are no longer under the law as a means by which we're to attain righteousness. 
We are no longer under the curse of the law for our failure to attain righteousness. Again, our striving as Christians, as we saw last week, is a a different sort of striving. It's not a legal obedience to attain the righteous standing. God gives us that by grace. Rather, it is recognizing as those who have received this grace, who have been made new, who have been given the Spirit, who are called now sons of God, who have an inheritance waiting for us, as those belonging to God by His grace, we are now freed that we might live for the very purpose for which we were created, to serve our God and to live unto Him. It's a very different sort of obedience than the legalistic type. This inward battle that Paul is talking about here and we see in other places in Scripture is not an optional one for believers. Our corrupted flesh that remains wars against the Spirit of God within us. But it is not a battle that we wage in order to try to earn merit before God. We live by the Spirit that has been graciously given to us. We wage our war with the tools that He has given to us, seeking, as God's children, to put to death our sin and to pursue holiness. And we trust that the Spirit will indeed win the battle within us. And so engage in it. Engage in it. Battle that flesh. Do so as God's freed people. Not under the condemnation every time you sin. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ who died for those sins. Continue to pray. Continue to resist. Set before you the good things of the Lord. And together we look ahead with great longing to the day when the battle will indeed be over. And we will stand before our God blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to keep your word for your goodness and kindness and graciousness to your people. You do good to your people. And we praise you and thank you for that. Make us truly a thankful people. Father, we pray that you would empower us and strengthen us by your spirit for this battle. Father, that we would not view this in a legalistic fashion, viewing you as some angry tyrant that we need to try to persuade with our actions, but that we would see all of your goodness and kindness to us that is ours in Christ by faith as a gracious gift of yours. May that grace lead us into holy living, that it would be our desire to walk by the Spirit. Forgive us, Father, where we fall short of this, where we become distracted, where we Put other things first. Father, give us wisdom in this day. Father, we continue to look to you for your grace and for your strength. Encourage our souls in these truths. Apply them to our hearts. 
free us from any sense of legal obligation, that we might joyfully be a, be a people who would joyfully war against our own sin. Father, we praise you for your kindness and goodness to us in Christ. And it is in his name that we pray these things. Amen.